Dotnet Rocks, episode 1002, with guest Paul Stovell. Recorded Monday, June 9th, 2014. Thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's Carl and Richard again. Indeed. We are uh, up to three times a week now. And so. into our second thousand worth of shows. That's right. We got another thousand to go before we even think about calling it quits. <laughs> Jeez. Really? Yeah, we're going to... Yeah, sorry. Sorry to let you know that, Richard. Just, wait, is that eight, eight more years? You're signed up. <laughs> I was supposed to sign up for 50 shows. What went wrong? I don't know. I don't know what it's going to be called by then, but uh, we'll we'll still be on the radio, I'm Geriatric sure. Geriatric rocks. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we'll do the nursing home tour. Nice. <laughs> that's our job. That's yeah, great. I remember when we had the C-sharp stuff. It was great. <laughs> I like you whippersnappers today with your, you just think it and you get software. All right, anyway. I got something really cool here from my friend Joshua Blake in D.C. Nice. Hit me. Yeah. Roll that music. All right, buddy. What do you got? Joshua is an an MVP for Connect uh, for Windows. He's also the technical director of the InfoStrat Advanced Technology Group in Washington, D.C. And his group there has come up with this Liberty Media Wall powered by Connect for Windows. And there's a YouTube video published uh, just on the 21st of May, um, just published here on YouTube. So if you go to tinyurl.com slash Liberty Media Wall, you'll see it in action. It's absolutely cool. It's a 24 by 11 high-resolution media wall at Liberty University's Jerry Falwell Library in Lynchburg, Virginia. That is a big screen. But just take a look and, you don't, you know, just just watch this here. Don't watch it for the politics. Watch it for the epic screen. So you see the um, there's like the the outline of you on the wall, and you can just sort of grab media and images and videos and move wow. them around and drop them in and out and grab the whole thing and move it around. It's just a gigantic. Well, and they love the shot with four people doing it at once on different oh, yeah. pieces of the screen. Like that's really cool. Very cool, huh? Yeah, interesting stuff. So, yeah, massive, massive scale up of your regular TV screen. It is a big screen and it must be a big sensor, too. Yeah, it's uh, it's all Connect for Windows. Awesome. And uh, so, like I said, Joshua Blake, another Connect for Windows MVP, a fellow Connect for Windows MVP and doing cool. great stuff in D.C., 24 foot by 11 foot. That's a big screen. You like that? Cool, dude. Isn't that neat? Yeah. Kudos to Josh. And yeah, the nice gang. one. Great stuff. All right, Richard, who's talking to us? I grabbed a comment off of show 966, and that's the one we did with uh, Nicholas Blumhart when we talked about structured logging. And I think there was actually a mention there about uh, Octopus Deploy that sort of set us up for the show we're doing yeah. today. In fact, this comment here is from Henrik, who says, just two days ahead of this podcast, I was tasked with setting up Octopus Deploy and add some kind of logging, in quotes, to a POC enterprise application. Guess who has two thumbs and got a lot out of this episode? This guy. <laughs> Thanks, Nicholas. Yeah, I do like Sarah Log for logging. I'm pretty smitten yep. with it, too. And I hope you do an episode on Octopus. I have known about it for some time, but just started using it with Team City for the above-mentioned application, and it is so easy to use to, and to get started. I went back to an older project and put the custom PowerShell scripts into Octopus, and it literally took me 20 minutes to upgrade an eight-server environment with manual deploys to a managed-release setup. There are no excuses for not doing continuous integration and deployment anymore. The tooling is here, and it is excellent. So maybe a little love fest uh, for Octopus Deploy, but yeah. it certainly brought it to light for me, and it speaks to my work these days focused on getting guys all the way to this continuous deployment model. So I'm excited. I'm happy to talk about it. Fantastic. So, Henrik, thanks so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you, and if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or on any of our mobile apps. We've got them for Windows Phone, Windows 8, Android and iOS, and those apps are built by Diatom Enterprises. Who'd love to build you an app? Just go to diatomenterprises.com. 
And before we go any further, let me tell you that Pluralsight is home to the largest technology and creative training library on the planet. They have thousands of developer, IT, and creative courses authored by MVPs and industry experts and .NET Rocks guests. They release dozens of courses every month and offer a free 10-day trial, giving you 200 minutes of access. Pluralsight offers a wide range of topics, of course, including coverage of iOS, Java, Android, web development, pretty much anything, everything Microsoft. Try Pluralsight today. Subscription plans start at just $29 a month. And that brings us to Paul Stovell. Paul is the co-founder of Octopus Deploy, an automated deployment tool for .NET developers. Paul started Octopus in 2011 as an attempt to help himself and other developers to more reliably and easily deploy software to production. Since then, Octopus has grown up and now helps over 2,000 customers around the world to automate their deployments. Prior to Octopus, Paul worked for an investment bank in London and in Australia for Redify, a .NET consulting firm. Paul's been a Microsoft MVP since 2006, although lately he's seen the light and spends his time in Angular JS. <laughs> ah! He's not alone. Welcome, Paul. Bye. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. It was uh, just it was a couple of years ago when when somebody I think it was at NDC came up to me and told me about Octopus and said we need to have you on. We've right. we've been kicking along for a while and um, developing I guess a a lot of people who are interested in the product that we're that we're building. I think we solve a, a pretty important pain point. Um, so yeah, it's great to be on. So give us the uh, give us the pitch. Sure. So so Octopus is an automated deployment tool. Um, and uh, what we do is we make it really easy to take your .NET applications and put it onto the production servers and the pre-production servers uh, that you're going to be running them on. We're .NET developers ourselves, and so we understand a lot of the conventions around building .NET applications, the way to deal with configuration files and so on. So we try and make, a, I guess, the easiest possible way to go from an app that you've got in Visual Studio through to uh, your continuous integration process through to software that's running on a production machine. And this is really for web apps and web services, or uh, are you handling other platforms as well? No, th that's right. It's mainly um, ASP.NET applications uh, and other web applications, as well as Windows services. So if you've got you know, a large end service bus SOA architecture, for example, with lots of microservices that you're deploying, um, Octopus can can handle pushing those out as well. We we stay away from the desktop and from from mobile deployments for now, though. So, what sets you apart from everybody else? I think we focus a lot on just being really easy to use um, and giving, I guess, a lot of visibility into into what's going on with the deployment. So, you know, people who come to Octopus generally aren't using another deployment automation tool. They're, they're using remote desktop, um, and I've worked in a, a lot of different places, um, and the common thing you see is no matter how good the practices of a development team are, you know, you can work on a online banking or investment banking. Um, you'll have some really great teams with uh, a lot of architectural knowledge, building some great software, um, but production deployments are, are done by remote desktop, and Richard, you can yeah. probably attest to this too. Oh, Yeah. And and it's one of the basic measures of the state of an organization for me is, uh, you know, how long they're spending in RDP for any of that stuff. Like just the idea that you hit a button and the, and the deploy just runs is talked about. Yeah. And, you know, when you think about it, so back when I started uh, development, um, you would go into a place and uh, they wouldn't have source control. And the options at the time were um, source, uh, source safe or CVS or, or subversion. And so right. you would come in and set up some kind of source control system. And the source control you know, is great because A, it gives you kind of the history of, of the code in a much more manageable way. Um, but then it also gives the whole team that visibility into the history so you can see people checking in and so on. Um, and then you would go into a place and they'd have source control, but they wouldn't have a CI tool. Everything would be building from Visual Studio and that's how they would release and deploy things. And so then we had like Cruise Control and Draco in the in the old days, and now there's uh, Team Build and Team City, which are both fantastic build systems. Um, and so now you've got this kind of place where a whole team can watch and see the code being compiled and see the unit tests running and so on. Um, but then deployment is still this this black hole 
where someone is taking some artifacts and putting them onto a machine through remote desktop. And there's no traceability. You know, when you think about uh, if you want to go back and know if your deployment steps are like copy some files over here, update a configuration file, make sure that you, you know, don't override the production configuration file, all of that kind of stuff. There's no traceability into making sure that that actually worked successfully last time. And if you don't get those steps right, you know, the, the common thing is you have a remote desktop and then a Word document that tells you all the steps to follow. Um, so automating that, it releases a lot of, um, I guess, the the issues that come with deployment. And it also gives you a lot of visibility into, into what's going on for your whole team. You get rid of that hole and then sacrifice a chicken step. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. We're here to save chickens. <laughs> I'm just surprised. Uh, why is this built into Studio? And I'm not talking about Octopus in particular, but just a good deployment process. I guess it is. You know, Visual Studio, you can right-click on a website and publish and, you know, push that up to a, a single server. Right. But then you think about a more complicated app where you've got Windows services and um an ASP.NET website or two that have to get deployed, um, some database migrations that need to be run. You can't just do those things in any order. You know, you can't deploy the new website if you haven't upgraded the database scheme or stopped a service, that kind of thing. Um, so Visual Studio can kind of give you some of the building blocks to a deployment process. But, you know, if, you're, if you've got five web servers in production, for example, you're going right. to have to right-click five times and say, publish this. So... I think, you know, deployment, and I guess going back historically, deployment on Windows was always hard. You know, if you talk about automating Windows, you were talking about batch files, whereas now yes. we've got PowerShell and things are, you know, that whole story is getting a lot better. Um, and so now is kind of the time where we're starting to see Microsoft investing a lot more in automation tools um, and companies like ours coming along as well and trying to help. And it seems like a lot of this is built around PowerShell. Octopus takes a, a huge um, dependency on PowerShell. We try to make some parts of PowerShell easy. So, uh, you know, in Octopus, typically we're deploying to many, many machines uh, that may or not, may not be on the same network. So rather than making you configure something like PowerShell remoting, we take care of getting the scripts to the remote machine and executing them in the right context. But PowerShell is, you know, it's an extremely versatile language. You might like or dislike the syntax, but the fact is it's it's there on all of the machines and it's better than writing batch scripts. So we may have a tool like uh, Cruise Control for doing continuous integration, but uh, and we might have other deployment tools. What other tools might we have that come close to doing what Octopus Deploy does? It's um So I guess if you weren't using Octopus Deploy, typically you would have something like Cruise Control or Team City, um, compiling your code and producing some kind of artifact that's ready to be deployed, so a, a zip file or an MSI or something. Um, then you've got a few things to think about. So the first thing is, how do I get this artifact to the machine that it's going to be running on? And there's a few options. So for a website, you've got um, Web Deploy, MS Deploy, uh, where you can can push a a file uh, or a package of an ASP.NET app to a server. Um, that's only going to do one server at a time. So you'll have to have some kind of, if you've got more than one server, some kind of loop, you know, around that right. to, to push it out. Um, you've also got to think about like the way you're going to configure your app for each environment, because, you know, in your staging environment or your UAT environment, you've probably got a different connection string to what's going to be in production and, you know, potentially a lot of other different settings. So that's, Another thing to think about is how is your configuration process going to work? And uh, you might be using something like Slow Cheetah to do some XML configuration transforms or maybe just some PowerShell to, you know, poke some XML values in there that way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, now, depending on what you're doing, you're also going to need to run commands on the remote machine. So, for example, if you're deploying a, a Windows service, you've got to think about how do I, if the service is already there, I'm going to stop it, I'm going to copy the new binaries over, and I'm going to start it again. If it's not there, I'm going to have to create the Windows service. Um, right. So, so that's going to have to run as someone who is an administrator. Yeah, I mean, this is the kind of stuff that most people do in PowerShell. This is the kind of stuff that most people just write scripts by hand to do. Absolutely, that's right. Yeah. So, you know, so I worked on this project where, um, and it was kind of the catalyst for creating Octopus, where we were under this really high pressure to get... 
an application built and, and out and running in production within kind of a six-week period. And we got in and it was like day one, we had version control and CI set up and we started working on the solution. And then we had someone for weeks just writing PowerShell scripts to you know, take all of the things, put them on the machines that they were going to run on, set up all the Windows services, set up the website, you know, and you get these reams and reams of PowerShell that, to be honest, sometimes becomes a bit of a write-once language, you know, that, that joke about Perl being a, a write-once language. Um, and PowerShell can kind of become the same thing when you have an awful lot of it. So, you know, the goal of Octopus is to kind of separate, firstly, the person writing those PowerShell scripts from the process that's running them, um, and then also, to, I guess, to reduce the amount of PowerShell you've got to run, especially just for getting things onto the machine and running them in the right context. Well, and especially when you're talking about websites these days, like IIS is completely controlled by PowerShell. We still have a uh, a GUI from controlling IIS in the IIS manager, but under the hood, it's just writing PowerShell scripts anyway. That's, and that's beautiful to see, isn't it? Like this kind of inversion from next, 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 finish wizards into right. something that can be automated. Um, and then, yeah, the goal of Octopus is just to sit on top of that and to um, to make calling those scripts a little bit easier. So, and it can totally integrate with, uh, you know, EC2 or AWS or Azure, if, right? I mean, there's nothing keeping you from uh, integrating with the stuff that you already have. No, that that's right. So, I, I guess if we think about, so the way Octopus works and, and where the name comes from is uh, we have an Octopus server um, and it controls many tentacles. So, the tentacles are this little agent service that runs on the machine that you're deploying to. So if you've got virtual machines in EC2 or virtual machines in Azure, you can run that agent service and Octopus can connect to it, push packages to it and make them configure things um, locally. Mm. And as well as working on-premise where you know, still a lot of .NET applications are being deployed to. So, yeah, big problem. Richard and I are always talking about this is configuration files, right? Yeah. yeah, you have config yeah. files that obviously they they're not the same running out of the gate. You know they're different on each machine, perhaps. So yeah, so the way we handle them is, um, so we're a bit opinionated, I guess, in terms of the way parts of Octopus work um, to try and make sure that you have the most reliable, repeatable, consistent deployment process. So, uh, so for example, if you're deploying software manually and you've got you know, your application it has a configuration file, you're deploying to a production server, um, you're probably not going to want to override that production configuration file. So you'll take a copy of it, you'll extract things, and then you'll you'll rename it, and now you've got your, your old production config back. And then if there are any settings, you'll kind of merge them manually. Um, with Octopus, so the way Octopus works is you take your application and you package it up into uh, a NuGet package, which is ready to be deployed. And inside of there, you have your one web.config file, as well as transformations for different environments. So if you've got an environment called production, then you'll have web.production.config, which is the transformation that turns that file into the production version. Um, the way that we handle things like connection strings being different is Octopus has this concept of variables, which are you know, key value pairs, so a name and a value, as well as a scope to which they apply. So you can say, this is my connection string for staging. This is my connection string for production. And during the deployment, Octopus will look in that configuration file and it'll say, you know, if you've got a connection string element with a name of my connection string and you've got a variable called my connection string, then Octopus will just go and replace that value for you, you know, without you having to write PowerShell to do that. Nice. Yeah, and there's, I know there's guys out there that are saying, what the hell's wrong with PowerShell? What are you guys so afraid of? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Do you like PowerShell, Richard? I do, but I've mostly, you know, I've got IT blood in me. Right. And developers you know? don't necessarily like that. Well, it's, it's one of the things I'm laughing about is that IT folks for the past while, especially as they get deeper and deeper PowerShell, start struggling with not knowing .NET. And I'm meeting more and more, uh, you know, operations guys that are taking .NET classes on the side. And now it, what what I'm looking at with Octopus Deploy is, uh-oh, devs need to sit down and actually learn PowerShell scripting properly. 
Yeah, there's there's no avoiding PowerShell, you know, if you're seriously getting into automated deployment. But we do try our best to sort of, I guess, uh, reduce the point at which you have to start learning it. So, for example, uh, we'll do those configuration transforms and replacing values in configuration files without requiring you to learn PowerShell. Um, if you're deploying a Windows service, then there's a feature in Octopus you can turn on that just says, I'm deploying a Windows service, um, here's the path to the executable, here's what to call the service, and we'll take care of installing it if it's not installed, stopping it, starting it, that sort of thing during the deployment. If you're deploying an IS website, we'll take care of uh, creating the website, creating application pools, um, setting like which authentication settings you want on that site, uh, and that's just something that you configure in the Octopus UI, again, without having to write PowerShell. Now, if you're doing something more advanced, you want to set some some uh, settings on the application pool, for example, that we don't expose through the UI because there's so many different options for IS, then that's the point where you're going to have to go and learn PowerShell to, to write that. Um, but we'll at least make it really easy for you to just write that PowerShell script, put it in Octopus, and we'll make sure that it runs on the remote machine with the right set of permissions and so on. And it's not a bad way to learn PowerShell in general. I mean, I'm a big believer, and I know, Carl, you've said this before, too, that you don't run stuff you don't know how it works. Sure. You know, like, you, you should know. But I think, th I got to think that the code that you're writing in Octopus is pretty coherent. This is not horribly complex stuff. No, and it, and it lets you at least kind of break up your script. So instead of having one great big deploy and configure script, you can kind of have, here's the little bit of script that's going to configure IS and, and here's my little bit for my Windows service and not have to think about the entire orchestration of that of that whole deployment. So, you know, I'm configuring my Windows service on one machine and my website on another machine. Octopus can kind of just take those little parts of the script and make sure they run in the right place without you having to worry about that. And that's all about the tentacles, right? That's right, yeah. So, so we, we've got a few different models for deployment. Um, if you're deploying uh, a Windows Azure cloud service, for example, we have kind of right. special support for pushing those up. Um, but in general, if you're, if you're thinking about on-premise deployments, yeah, we have this agent called the tentacle, you know, with one octopus controlling lots of tentacles. Uh, right. And octopus will send packages to it and then tell the tentacle, install this package, and here's a whole bunch of variables on how to configure it and scripts to run and so on. And I mean, in theory, you can do remote execution to PowerShell. There's a lot of configuration to getting that stuff right. Like I've done 10 server website deploys directly. And that's not a trivial thing. Like getting the permissions right is a pain in the ass. And it sounds like you're bypassing a lot of that by just putting a chunk of software on your on the other end. Yeah, that's, that's right. So PowerShell remoting... Um you can enable and it's going to listen on a port and you can push commands to it. But it, it comes with a few limitations around how it can be used. So typically it's not running with a full profile. So there's a lot yeah. of things you can't do within a PowerShell remoting context on a remote machine. Um, and it kind of involves uh, the machines either needing to be like on the same AD domain. And if all your machines yep. are on the same AD domain, it, it works beautifully. Otherwise you kind of get into this whole having to edit trusted hosts and, um, yep. And kind of the security well, and, issues and that. On one hand, uh, PowerShell remoting depends heavily on AD permissions, like makes life way easier. And on the other hand, best practices for web servers in a DMZ is they're not joined to the domain. Yeah. Right? So uh, I'm going to go beat myself with a hammer now. <laughs> so we, <laughs> we sidestep a lot of that by, um, you know, you think in, in like the Linux world, um, Deployment is, is typically done through something like SSH. So right. you have a server that, that's listening and you connect to it. And the nice thing about SSH is, um, you, though you can use usernames and passwords to connect to it, generally you set up a trust relationship based on X509 certificates. So it's the same way that you secure a B2B service without having to use a shared secret like a password. Um, so that's the way our tentacle agent works. So the tentacle has an X509 certificate. The octopus has one. When you set them up, you establish this trust relationship to say that my agent will only accept commands that come from an octopus server that I trust. And likewise, right. the octopus will only send commands to an agent that it trusts. So we get Over this encryption. an encrypted connection because all X509 is encrypted. Exactly. And, so you've, and, it, and you're not broadcasting identity at all then. It's literally doing its own identity on the other end. That's right. So if, you know, if, 
if you set up your automation system using usernames and passwords and the person who owned that password moves on or the service account gets deleted, yeah, that creates some problems. Whereas um, because we're relying on this trust that's established with the X509 certificates and it works in both directions, um, we get the, the benefits of security and we know who's calling us without it having to be tied to a specific user account. And so because of that, then we kind of, we don't need to run on the same domain. So typically people will have an Octopus server that's on their local dev environment and then their production servers are running off in EC2 or somewhere, you know, not even over a VPN connection, but just straight over the internet. And we get that security and identity with our connections that way. Well, and it's not just about deploy to production anyway, right? Do you, I can use Octopus Deploy to deploy to my test environment, low, pre-prod, stuff like that. Right. Absolutely. So we kind of take another opinion, I guess, is that the deployment process should be the same for each environment. So my deployment process for UAT should be pretty much the same as my process for production. And the more right. similar it is, the better off you're going to be because your know, production deployment is a scary thing sometimes. And it really shouldn't be. It's kind of like the more often you do it, uh, the more often you're testing your deployment process, the more um, faith you're going to have that a production deployment is going to go well. But well, typically, and, and running your deployment as part of an automated test, like my my happiest customers right now are the ones where we've moved the testing into the cloud because A, testing super fast. B, uh, you know, cloud's cheap. But I guess it didn't even hit me that we trust our deploy mechanism a lot because it runs several times a day. That's that's right. And that's what we find with our customers too. They put Octopus into their, their pre-prod environments. They get it working. Once you can deploy easily, and it's not like someone has to spend an hour in remote desktop on a bunch of machines moving stuff around, it's kind of a click of a button. You build so much faith and trust that the deployment process is going to work that it's very compelling to just make that happen in production as well. And then when it does, because you've tested the exact same bits being deployed to the you know very similar configurations and so on, um, the production deployment is going to tend to be a lot more successful than if you had completely different people reading a different Word document with different remote desktop sessions going over, trying to do right. things manually. Well, and I guess part of this is that means your your deploy process has to abstract all of the machine names, all of the account names, all of the connection strings. Like That's got to be right for you to be able to deploy to two different locations. That's right. And I think, you know, beyond kind of saving you from writing PowerShell, the value that, that we add is this kind of model where, so in Octopus, you have environments, like so dev, staging, production. Environments have machines, so WebO1, WebO2, and so on. Right. And those machines are tagged with roles. So my, my two WebO1 machines have a, a web server role or a, a MyApp web server role. Right. And then when you need to find your deployment process, you're specifying it not in terms of machines, but in terms of roles. So I'm going to take this website and deploy it to my app server, web server roles. Um, and so then that exact same process can be run for each of those environments, and it's just going to be different machines that are that are in the environment in those given roles. And, and how many different kinds of roles can we talk here? Or is it just up to us to make whatever we want? That's right. So you can have as many environments as you want uh, and as many different kinds of roles as you want. And the nice thing is, you know, your pre-prod environment, it would be lovely if it mimicked prod exactly, like, you know, yeah. all the way down to your dev environment if it had the same number of servers and so on. Um, that doesn't tend to be the case. So no, what you can I, do I, is, I, would, I don't think that's ever, <laughs> even in the midst of the .NET boom, Didn't, I had a pre-prod environment that was symmetrical to a production environment, but nothing else. That's right. Mm. So... So the way in, in, in Octopus it would look is you'd have in your dev environment maybe one machine that's just got all of your roles on it. And then right. in your prod environment, you're going to have lots of machines, one with just each of those roles. So um, it's still the exact same deployment process, just different machines going to be involved. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. You know what time it is now? Ah, oh, must be that happy time again. How did you know it's time to send back that brimming bowl of squid ink pasta and summon a 22-ounce, three-week, dry-aged, bone-in ribeye with a side of Bernays sauce, roasted wild mushrooms, and a bottle of 2002 Amarone della Valpolicella. <laughs> I think you're describing a dinner you had recently. Uh, it's a dinner that I really would like to have tonight. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, it's squid ink, dude. They eat squid ink, not octopus ink. Take that squid ink away. There you go. It's the closest I could find octopus. Close enough. Yeah. No. Yes. No. <laughs> <laughs> I love recording shows towards the end of the day. <laughs> it's actually time to give away Component One Studio Enterprise Collection to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But before I tell you who the winner is, let's talk about Component One Studio Enterprise. .NET controls for professional developers. Whether you're building the most modern touch-enabled apps or maintaining and updating legacy applications, Component One's flagship product, Studio Enterprise, helps to deliver rich, responsive desktop and web apps on time and under budget. Indeed. Indeed. So who's our winner, buddy? Today's winner is Timothy Hathaway. Congratulations, Timothy. Got the clappers. You got clappers? Awesome. Golf clap for you, sir. And Timothy just won the Component One Studio Enterprise. This is a, a big, giant collection from Component One. Hey, if you don't know what we're talking about by now, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .net Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. Every show, we give away great stuff like this. And every December, we give away $5,000 worth of technology to one lucky member of the .net Rocks fan club picked at random from all of the members. We've done it twice now, and you know what, Paul? We like to ask our guests, if you had five grand to spend right now today on technology, what would you buy? Oh, I've, I've been dreading this question uh, ever since I found out I was coming <laughs> on the podcast. <laughs> I, I've got all the gadgets I need, so I'm not sure um, I need any more gadgets, but I think there are two things I'd probably spend it on. Um, one would be I've been watching a lot of the sessions coming out of NDC Oslo and thinking that's a conference I really, really want to go to sometime. Yeah. So, and being in Australia, it's very far away. So, I think most of that would probably go on flights. Um, mm. And then the other Yeah, thing- that's a good $2,500, $3,000 airfare right there. You could buy a bottle of 2002 Amarone della Valpolicella. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I just can't stop saying that. Yes. Uh, yeah, we love the show. I mean, we're freshly back from it, yep. and it's been uh, it's it's one of our favorites. We've been to almost every single one of them. I imagine you could probably get there, flight, hotel, and and uh, conference for close to five grand. Don't you think, yeah. Richard? It'd be in that ballpark. You'd be in there as long as you didn't eat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't drink at night. You know. Yeah. Because, you know, Norway is kind of, Oslo is kind of expensive. I think it's yeah. the most expensive city in the world. Yeah, it's up there yeah. for sure. But, uh, yeah, what a great idea, actually, take that money and, and, and spend it on a on a, a learning opportunity. Yeah. It's a, it's a great concept. Did you see any of the videos, Paul? I've been watching, uh, I watched one by Jeff French, which is about a really interesting product called Octopus Deploy. So That's that- awesome. I've heard good things. <laughs> Um, and I've got a lot queued up for uh, other ones I want to watch as well. But the the, awesome. the 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 breadth of different topics they cover, and it, it's not you know very vendor specific. It just yeah. seems like a really really interesting conference. It's a great conference. Well, and and Jeff came swung by. We have a a booth there, basically a fishbowl where we record shows. Jeff swung by the booth and said, "Hey, anytime you guys want to talk about octopus, well, I'd love to have you." And I said, "I've got Paul scheduled." For a couple of weeks from now, and he's like, "Well, you've got the man then," and that was the end of that conversation. <laughs> I got a, I got two directions I want to go in here. Well, let's start. With, let's start with um, databases. How do you get the database deployment to be part of the overall app deployment? That's a that's a hard one, um, and it's a hard one because there's kind of an organizational issue that's sort of attached with it. Um, people tend to be a lot more careful when it comes to working with their database than they would yes. with application code, for example, um, and for good reasons. Um, the, way that, the way that we approach it, though, is to say, um, so we're not in the business of making database deployments specifically incredibly easy. There's a lot of good tools right. out there that will help with that. Um, so the way you approach it is to think about, you know, take Octopus to one side. If you were trying to automate a database deployment, how would you go about it? And a lot right. of that will depend on you know what kind of database you're working with, your tolerance for the level of automation that you want to have and, and the way you want to deal with rollbacks and so on, um, and the frameworks that you might be using. So if you're using Entity Framework, for example, and we'll start mm-hmm. there to give a more specific answer, um, Entity Framework's got a pretty good migration um, 
framework built into it. So you can go from one version of your schema to the next version. So the way I would go about it then is to build a console app that just runs those migrations, point it at a database, figure out what schema it's on, what schema it needs to be on, and apply the entity framework migrations to, to get it there. So now you've automated that moving from one schema to the next. It's very easy to take that console app and then have PowerShell call it as part of your Octopus deployment. You know, it's going to be a one-line right. PowerShell script to invoke it. Um, and the nice well, thing about there's a Visual that, Studio data tools, there's Redgate SQL Compare. Like, there's a few products out there that give it a schema, point it at a database, and it'll write the script to do the transformation of that schema. And is generally, my experience, really careful about not damaging data. Or at least when they have no way to know for sure if they're going to damage data, they abort with a, with a proper error message so you can um, stop. That's exactly right. And so you can take those things and have PowerShell call them, you know, and then have Octopus including that as part of its deployment process that it's orchestrating. Um, if you're wanting something a bit more low-tech and you're happy to just write T-SQL scripts yourself to you know, add a column and so on, um, yep. then there's an open source tool called dbup, which you just give it a list of SQL scripts. It will look at the database. It'll work out which ones haven't been run yet by just it has a table where it keeps, you know, I've run this version, I've run this version, and it will run the ones it hasn't run. And that's kind of the easiest way to do a, a database migration if you're happy to get into T-SQL and, and kind of hand code your migration scripts or export Which a, a lot of DBA so, yeah. types, pref- they believe they're keepers of scripts, like that that's the mm-hmm. thing they got to take care of. So it's good to know that you could make their scripts part of the process. I guess it's just define a role for databases and then uh, apply the scripts accordingly. That's right. You package up your scripts in a NuGet package. You have a deploy PS1 file that invokes it. Uh, and then you have that run on a machine. And again, different connection strings for different environments. So you will just set those up as variables in Octopus and scope them according to the environment. The, the other way we do it, um, and I think this actually gets used pretty commonly, is you know you might convince your dev and your operations team to go down a fully automated path. It might be harder to convince the DBA team until they've developed yes. trust in the product. So we have this ability to add a manual step to your deployment that basically, oh. you know, we run some steps and then we pause and a human comes and does something and they tell us whether it's successful or failed and then we'll keep running the rest of the automated process. So when you encounter something that you can't automate or you're not ready to automate, you can put in that manual step and say, okay, this is where Sally, the DBA, is going to run whatever scripts need to be run. And then the rest right. of the deployment. And make an assessment of the database and, and so on. Yeah, and then you know after she's run it, she can kind of put in a comment about how it went, or if it didn't work, she can say you know why it didn't work and fail, and you still get at least a certain level of traceability and and accountability happening within the overall deployment process. Well, I, I don't have a problem with actually having manual steps. Just where somebody has a stop point to say, okay, before we go any further, anybody want to take a look here? That's right. You know, right before you're about to switch the website from. Uh, you know, kind of being in a staging environment through to production, having that manual step right. where someone's going to come and do a review, it makes a lot of sense. I'm almost good. Now that I'm thinking about this, I'm thinking, you know, the first thing I would build with Octus Deploy would be a fully manual deploy. Like we're <laughs> take that word doc, create it as a set of steps that are manually executed at each step of the way. Absolutely. And build kind of a little human automation workflow. Yeah. And yeah. then it's like, you want to get yourself out of this process? Get to work. Yeah, and you'll find, you know, there'll be, you know, if, if the word doc says stop a service, that starts as a manual thing. And then you'll go and Google, how do I stop a service from PowerShell or, or figure out how right. to do that in Octopus? And then you kind of just replace that part of it and keep going until eventually there's little, if any, manual steps left. Yeah, I think you, um, um, other than the gate step of just, okay, here we go. Any final check-ins or, you know, before we actually do this, I think uh, you want to get fully automated. What about on the other end, stuff like load balancing? So, um, again, the answer is going to be PowerShell because it's all going to depend on what kind of load balancer you've got. But you can definitely do, so in Octopus, we have this concept of like a rolling package step. So, I guess stepping back, one of the things that Octopus does differently to like a build server is a build server you know, has something it's going to do and it picks one agent to run it on and it runs it start to finish on that machine. Right. Octopus has kind of the central Octopus server and it's running a lot of different stuff in parallel. So we can take for a website, for example, if you had 10 web servers, 
we can take the package, push it to those 10 machines, deploy it and configure it, doing all of those things in parallel. And the log that we give you back to kind of show what's happening on all of those machines is hierarchical, so you can expand and see what's going on on each of the nodes. Um, so, but for a website, that may not be the way you want to do it. So we have this concept of like a rolling step where you can say, of my 10 web servers, take one of them, run some PowerShell script that maybe removes it from a load balancer, deploy a package to it, add it back to the load balancer, and then go on to do the next one. Or do them in batches of two or three machines at a time and kind of... Yeah, I've, I've done a flop where we take half the machines out of the pool, update them all, and then switch the pool. Yep. So as long as you can figure out how to do that, kind of removing them from the pool and adding them back um, from PowerShell, because it's all going to depend on what kind of load balances you've got, um, you can have Octopus invoke that script as part of the process. And part of that's got to be a wait, right? Like even if you're using just network load balancing, I can go to network load balancing and say, take this machine out of the pool, but drain it first. That's so you right. you put it in a drain state, and, and then you've got to wait until it's drained before you remove the next one or before you can actually shut down the service. And it's the same with EC2. You, you know, you kind of remove the machine from the load balancer and then you poll and until eventually at some point it has actually been removed and then you can continue. And you can parallelize that. So if I had 10 machines, I could take five of them, say drain these five and then wait on all of them. And once all five are done, well, as each one finishes, update it. But you don't build the new pool until all five are done. That's right. So you could say, you know, do a rolling deployment through my environment, you know, from all of the machines, but take five out at once run right. this thing in parallel on five of them, and then when that's all finished, then start on the next batch of five. Yeah, it really depends on how fancy you are. I've done really fancy setups of this, but the, doing half, switching over to that half, doing the other half, kind of the least painful way to do a, a continuous uptime update. I mean, that's what everybody's after, right, is the site never goes down. And effectively, the user just suddenly, you know, how you, you put a few things in your shopping cart, and then it's a new shopping cart, but you didn't lose the stuff that was already in it. Yeah, and it's it's amazing. The more I've researched into this, the more it's it's never just kind of an immediate switchover. You know, from a user's no. point of view, it can look that way, but there's kind of always a timing part related to it. You know, you're either waiting for something to be removed from a load balancer, or you're waiting for yeah. a DNS change to update, or you know, it, well, and like a transitory piece for the database too. It's like we put these new columns in which don't affect the old queries at all. And then we take half the machines out of the pool. Then we update half those machines. Then we build the new pool. Then we flop over to it. And then we update the other machines. Then we put them back into the pool as well. And then we do another round of changes to the database to clean up because the old version is now gone. Yep. Like rolling, I mean, one, there's one thing about continuous deployment. There's another thing about continuous uptime while doing deployment. Like, you you should be wearing a wizard's hat if once you get that right. Like, feel pretty good about yourself. That is hard. Uh, so all the automation stuff is very cool, but what happens if you need some manual intervention? Like, what happens if somebody needs to sign off on a on a particular process? Can can that interrupt uh, or even uh, take down? You know, possibly a deployment. Absolutely. So those manual steps that we were talking about from like a database point of view where you want to involve a DBA to you know, pause the deployment partway through, have someone come and check something or do something with some instructions. Um, those are the same manual steps that you'll use if you want to put them at the start of your deployment and have them only run for like a production deployment where you say, I'm waiting for someone from this team to come and approve. And if they approve, they can we can proceed with the deployment. And if they don't approve, then we'll fail the deployment. Um, so they can go at the start or at the end of the deployment as well, uh, as awesome. well as being kind of intermixed, you know, halfway through a deployment, which is pretty cool. Yeah, that is awesome. And and I also wanted to get the opposite point that if you are one of these people who likes command line stuff and APIs, there is a REST API, right? And there is a command line model and there is a, a .NET API as well, right? That's right. So our UI is built in AngularJS um, and it all talks uh, to a Nancy-based REST API. So everything you can do in the Octopus UI can be done through our REST API. And then we have a .NET client around that. So if there are kind of things missing or you just kind of want to do things a little bit differently, that API is kind of a, a really great extension point. All right. And one last thing is um, security. What's the security store? I mean, you, you touched on it a little bit, but what uh, what kinds of things can we can we use? So you can, um, you can limit... 
so, you, so you create like teams of people in Octopus, um, and they can either be made up of AD groups if you're using Active Directory, or they can just be teams of people that we manage. Um, and then for those teams, you can say, this team can do certain things like uh, maybe edit a project but not deploy it, or they can create releases, or they can deploy the project um, for a certain environment or for a certain project. So you can say, you know, the developers on this team can deploy this application, but only to the dev and test environments. They can't deploy to production. So that opens up this whole world of like self-service deployments where um, as the release manager, you can define the deployment process that's going to run in production, but also in all the pre-production environments. But you don't have to be the person doing it. You can say, these people are allowed to deploy up to a point, but then only a certain group of people are allowed to deploy to production. And in terms of encryption and things like that, what, what's can we use whatever we'd like? Uh, in, in encryption for what? Well, uh, encryption for the for the communication, encryption for the database. Uh, yep. So, so talking between Octopus and Tentacles, we use X509 certificates, and that sort of uh, that's just kind of built into the protocol that we're using. We, we use SSL basically with a, a client certificate. Um, there's not much you can really do to, to change right. that, though. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. Um, so, what happens if a deployment fails? Is there a tr- an idea of a transaction? Can we roll things back? To, is there a, a point at which we can uh, go back to and uh, and restore? So, I guess the first thing that we do uh, that that is going to help when something goes wrong is everything that's running in Octopus and running on all of the agents, the output of any scripts that we're running or or anything else, all of that. All of that information is brought back to the Octopus server as a single log that the whole team can look at. So that alone provides a lot of value because if something goes wrong, you'll be able to kind of look through that log and see without having to remote desktop to the machine and look at the event viewer or something to work out where something went wrong. Um, and then the next stage is, you know, you want to you want to fix the thing that's gone wrong. So we can't really put a transaction around the whole deployment. Um, what we can make it really easy to do is... Uh, if an individual package goes wrong, there's some PowerShell that you can write to, to fix it. You can also have steps in your deployment process that only run if there's been a failure. But often what happens is the deployment is successful, but there's something wrong with what got deployed. Um, so, you know, you've, you've deployed a, a feature or you've deployed a database migration, right. which just <laughs> completely deleted a whole bunch of stuff, but Octopus yeah, exactly. ran it perfectly. You know, so it's, it's a big green success from Octopus, but, but it's not what you wanted to deploy. So the rollback strategy is going to really depend on what you're deploying. You know, if you're deploying um, an applica- a bunch of application servers and websites and not thinking about the database, that's really easy because you just find the old version and deploy that over the top. Um, the other thing we talk about is like rolling forward. So instead of trying to kind of automatically roll back, you just fix the issue and deploy a new version on top. Sure. With a database, though, things get really tricky because, you know, I, I guess I think... If if I was deploying a database migration and I've I've added a bunch of columns, I've moved a whole bunch of data around, and something goes wrong with that deployment, the last thing I would want is for some tool to think it knows what to do in that case, and then to come in and start kind of trying to undo all of those database changes. So you, what we do is we'll just kind of say, hey, this went wrong, and that's kind of the point at which a human's going to intervene, figure out what went wrong, and then figure out how to make sure it you know doesn't happen again. Sure. And hopefully, because you've been running the same process in all of your pre-prod environments as production, you'll kind of f- find these problems before you get to production. Yeah. Maybe we should have said this off the top, of, but uh, Octopus Deploy, free download, right? So, um, you know, we want to make it really easy and affordable, uh, even for large installations, actually, but especially for smaller ones. So, I think if you've got... Um, uh, 10 machines that you're deploying your application to, um, you can use Octopus completely for free. And there's no uh, no kind of limits apart from the number of machines and the number of projects right. you can deploy. Um, so there's no time limit or anything like that. Well, I'm, um, I'm looking at the website. It says the, uh, five projects up to 10 tentacles limited to five users. Right, yep, yep. So, you know, for most small teams, um, and I think probably about half the people using Octopus are kind of on that on that free version, it also makes it really easy if you just want to, if you're not sure if you want to use a, a tool like Octopus, it's free, so give it a go 
Uh, and if it's saving you time in your pre-prod environments, you know, then you can think about um, moving out to production. So, but hopefully at least when you're, because you tend to deploy to the pre-prod environments more often than production, hopefully it'll save you a lot of time from that angle. The other thing we do is, you know, if you compare like our pricing, um, not that we want to be competing on pricing or anything, but a lot of automation systems are priced on the number of machines you're deploying to. So we've got customers that are deploying apps to over 700 machines you know, running in their own data centers or in the cloud. Um, and most automation solutions, you, you're paying per agent. So that adds up very quickly. Uh, whereas we have sort of a cap on, I think it's about $5,000 for the enterprise version, um, where you know after that, you just get unlimited machines that you're deploying to. So. Hey. Yeah, once you're big, you're big. But uh, but up to then, I mean, the reality here is somebody can be for a smaller project. You can be using this without charge and and be fine if you get to a certain level of success. Uh, help contribute. So I'm looking at the uh, again looking at the website. There's a professional version, seven hundred dollars covers twenty projects, twenty tentacles, twenty users, and then a team, two thousand dollars, sixty projects, sixty tentacles, sixty users, and then it goes up to five thousand for unlimited. So that's that's pretty good. Yeah, and you know, I would hope that we're saving you at least. You know, you think about if someone is just using a remote desktop once a week, and it takes them a few hours to kind of run all the things on the right machines. Even if you don't think about like the cost of them making a mistake because they're human and all of those things, but just the time that it's spent, right. I think we'll we'll pay back that two thousand dollars or seven hundred dollars pretty quickly. Absolutely. So what's uh, what's next? Are you continuously improving Octopus Deploy? <laughs> yeah, we um, so we released version two a little while ago, and that that was kind of a major rewrite internally. That's kind of where we went to the whole REST API and and so on. Um, coming up next, I think we're going to try and do some more focus on making a lot of the common deployment scenarios a bit more easy. So some more options if you're deploying to IS uh, and so on. And we try to do new releases of Octopus every couple of months with with new features. Um, I think we're going to start to think more about kind of the operations space. So um, not just kind of, so, so, and I guess this is kind of another area of discussion. If you compare and contrast a tool like Octopus to something like Puppet or Chef or PowerShell DSC, uh, we're much more about orchestration of things that kind of have to run in a specific order. Uh, whereas those tools, you kind of just say, here's my desired state of things and, they'll kind of take care of getting you to that state. Um, so it works really great for operations. It doesn't work so well for application deployments. Um, but we're probably going to try and, and look at what we can do in that space as well because we've got this agent that's running on all of your machines. It can report so much information about what's going on there. We can probably do a lot to help from an operations point of view as well. So I think that's where we'll be going next. Awesome. Can't wait. Good stuff. Thank you very much. It's been great Thanks talking. Thanks for having me. All right, Paul. We'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got transmitter bands by the FCC. Yes, I'm a toy.